Welcome to the BCMA podcast webinar series. This podcast is converted webinar audio. Super, look at that, we're recording and I'm gonna hit broadcast. Let's get this started, awesome. That's welcoming folks in, let me just make sure Yes, I see folks arriving. That's wonderful. Okie dokie. I see the closed captioning below, which is distracting for me. So I'm going to move that aside. Awesome. Well, let's get started. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the British Columbia Museums Association webinar. My name is Lorenza Kelbert, and I will be your host for today. Today's webinar topic is all about archaeological repositories, presented by Dr. Genevieve Hill, Acting Curator of Archaeology at the Royal BC Museum. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that as an organization of provincial scope, the BCMA recognizes that its members, today's presenters and attendees occupy the lands and territories of BC's Indigenous people. We ask all of you to reflect on the places where you reside and work and to respect the diversity of cultures and experiences that form its richness. Today I'm joining you from the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen people and I invite you to post in the chat your name, the organization you're uh, working at and where you're joining us from. As I mentioned, uh, my name is Lorenda Kelbert, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm your host for today. I'm also the BCMA's programs coordinator. Um, I don't have my video on, but there is a picture of me up on the screen. Uh, so just a, a visual description. I have long, blonde, straight hair uh, that's tossed over my shoulders. I have pale, fair skin. I've got blue eyes. Um, I am smiling in the photo. I did 10 years of braces, so I think I have a beautiful smile. I have a maroon corduroy shirt jacket, and I'm wearing a striped sweater, and that sweater is brown, beige, fuchsia, and purple. Um, the slides that are on the screen right now are um, light blue and white with a dark gray font, and it's just summarizing some of the things I'm saying to you verbally. If you are having any technical problems today, you can reach out to Vanessa at operations at museum.bc.ca, and she can give you um, a helping hand. I will be sharing my slides today as well as our presenter's slides, so I am unable to uh, look at my email during this. Um, so we do encourage you to reach out to Vanessa instead of myself. Um, now just some uh, information on how to use this webinar. Uh, please use the chat feature uh, to post questions or make comments. If you can't find the chat feature but find the Q&A button, you can use that as well. Uh, I will be uh, facilitating the Q&A today and reading those out to our presenter. If you can't find the chat or Q&A button, it is in your taskbar, which may be hidden from you. So just hover your mouse at the top or bottom of your screen and it should appear. Uh, we also have closed captioning enabled today and that is also where you will find the closed caption button in that taskbar. So again, if you can't see it, just hover your mouse at the top or bottom of the screen and it should appear. Um, so Genevieve, I'm going to stop sharing my slide right now and then I will start sharing yours. Um, I just make sure I've got that open. Beautiful. Oh, and I, I should mention I'm also joined by, oh, this is not where it should be. There we go. I'm also joined by my co-host Leah. Um, I don't know, Leah, if you'd want to post in the chat your title and name and um, where you're joining us from. Okay, Genevieve, it's yours. Okay. Thank you all for having me. 
Uh, thank you for the BCMA for reaching out and asking me to talk about the subject. Um, I should say this is obviously the very tip of the iceberg and there's so much more to say, but I've put together some highlights that I hope that uh, will help everyone understand a bit more about archaeological repositories in British Columbia. Um, so can I get the next slide, please? I feel like I'm having a flashback to university. Next slide, please. So I'm also joining you uh, from Kulungan territory. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit in the next slide, please. So I'm Genevieve Hill. I am, uh, I was born in Laidley Dene territory to parents of English, Scottish and Irish descent. I was, I moved down to Cowichan territory when I was five and, and spent most of my youth and young adulthood there. And now I live on Songhees and Esquimalt territory. And I'm grateful to all of those communities for their stewardship of those places. And I'm grateful to have had such formative experiences in those places. I'm also thankful to all the people who have shared their knowledge with me over the years, because I certainly wouldn't be here without their assistance. Um, so a little bit about my background uh, and why I'm talking to you about this today. So I, I am, I went to University of Victoria for my undergraduate degree in anthropology and Greek and Roman studies. That's where I fell in love with archaeology and worked as a consulting archaeologist, you know, but like a shovel bum, a really early field tech uh, after my undergrad and fell in love even deeper and then went over to the University of Exeter in England to do my master's and PhD in wetland archaeology. So obviously my research interests uh, in the field are based on wetland archaeology and wet site archaeology um, and perishable material. Uh, after graduating from the University of Exeter, I came back to British Columbia and was lucky enough to have experience working as a consulting archaeologist, then a short stint at the archaeology branch as a project officer, and finally I came to the museum in 2015, where I've been collection manager um, for most of my time here and uh, I'm acting curator for a short period of time. So when I'm not at work, I am the mother to two to twins who are two and a half years old. So my husband and I are pretty busy these days. Um, but this whole experience uh, and my experience here in British Columbia and working with uh, material culture from the ground all the way to the repository is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about talking about this subject. Um, so I'm gonna get into the history, next slide please, a little bit uh, of how we came to be. But first, I, I definitely wanna take time to acknowledge the indigenous existence in the place we call BC and to say that it's obviously deeper and broader than any of us will ever be able to know or conceive of. We are surrounded by the evidence of indigenous existence and their long and ongoing stewardship of the land. Scientific means of learning about the world have in some cases come across evidence of these long-standing relationships, but the absence of evidence from the deep past is a problem of Western science. It's based on where and how we have chosen to look for that evidence, and that's our problem. Scientific methods of inquiry are not without cultural bias, obviously. 
the stories we've told about the past through published articles, often through popular articles, have been influenced first by where we choose to look and what we choose to look for, and then by how that evidence was kept and stored and made accessible and to whom it was made accessible or not. And I'll give you guys a bit of an example of that later on. Museums started with a focus on preserving a past that society was actively trying to extinguish. Then archaeology focused on saving cultural material primarily for science and for history. But now it's about time to reconnect people with their past. The way we do archaeology and the way we manage that evidence has a direct bearing on the way we have come to understand the past. And it's imperative that we focus on making meaningful connections between people, particularly Indigenous people, and their cultural belongings, especially in light of the fact that their past was actively suppressed and robbed from them. Even now, under the Heritage Conservation Act permitting system, Indigenous sites are being excavated, and excavation, as much as we record it, is is equal to destroying a site. So uh, under the current circumstances, it's our responsibility to do the best that we can to preserve recovered archeological material and to make sure it's accessible to those communities to which it means the most. We need to understand the history of archeology span and the history of museums in order to understand where we are today and how we can move forward in a good way. So I'll talk a little bit first about the role, the popular role of archaeological repositories. Next slide. Oh, yeah, next slide, please. I'm getting ahead of myself. Thanks. So what people think of when they think of an archaeological repository is it's a place to keep stuff for a while. It's a place where people help to learn more about the stuff that they have and a place to share that knowledge with the general public. Next slide. But as I go through the historical context, I want you to see how the role of museums and the role of archaeological recovery has sort of changed throughout. And this, you know, the way that things come to a museum, the way they come to an archaeological repository really uh, informs what sort of material we have and the sort of material we don't have. And that's important to understand too. So I'm gonna start way back in the 1800s. As soon as Europeans began to visit the Northwest Coast, the documentation and preservation of artifacts began. In the early days of gathering archeological material, uh, you know, that, that whole process of, of quote unquote gathering was uh, rather ignominious. Artifacts and ancestral remains were collected as a means of recording what was then expected to be a disappearing culture. So then in 1865, um, the government of the day came up with the Indian Graves Ordinance. And that was a legal measure that was put in place to protect primarily grave goods because um, you know, graves were being actively looted by people who were participating in the curio trade. I'll show you some pictures of that in a second. Uh, not of graves, but of the curio shops. Um, 18, in 1886, a petition from influential citizens of Victoria was signed, uh, and that created, uh, it sort of founded the Provincial Museum. And this is when the Provincial Museum begins to keep records of archaeological belongings and other cultural material, as well as natural, histo natural history specimens. And this, this record is what eventually will become the Provincial Catalog, which I'll talk about a bit later. So then, you know, what's happening in the landscape 
in the early 1890s, people like Charles Hill, Hill II or Hill Tout, I'm still not sure how to pronounce that, uh, is excavating at the SNOM. Uh, some people know it as the Marpole Midden. And he was working for the Art Historical and Scientific Associative Association of Vancouver. Uh, later on in the 1890s, uh, Harlan Smith was digging at the SNOM specifically for human remains for the Jessup North Pacific Expedition. And collectors all over the Northwest Coast were buying, taking, and confiscating material, and that includes Indian agents. Next slide, please. So here is a picture of uh, Mr. F. Landsberg's Indian Curio Shop uh, in Victoria. And you can see, uh, it says he's been at it for 23 years. It's a heck of a lot of stuff, and it's a heck of a lot of stuff from all over the province. Uh, the trade in curios was extremely uh, rampant, uh, and there were no controls over them when these curio shops first popped up. And so um, if you go to the next slide, here's another example. Uh, can you go to the next slide, please? Mrs. Aronson, oh, sorry. I was looking at the wrong screen. <laughs> uh, yeah, Mrs. Aronson, thank you. Mrs. Aronson's curious store as well. There's, uh, again, a wealth of material. Some things were bought. Some things were bought uh, from community members who were making replicas. Uh, and that's a different kettle of fish than uh, things that were stolen from burial grounds or, or sold under duress, which is another way that belongings came into um, museums. Next slide, please. So then we also have, yeah, here's a picture of the Indian Graves Ordinance that talks about um, specifically uh, protecting graves. And by and large, this act seems to have really focused on the belongings, not so much um, to try and control it, but it was sort of a way for uh, the province to have a hand in uh, making sure that this material wasn't leaving the province. And a lot of it ended up coming to a place like the museum, this museum, or other museums throughout the province. Uh, I'm not gonna show any graves. Um, one, of the, one of the commitments of this museum is to not show graves, not show ancestral remains. Um, so anybody who saw the Egypt exhibit will notice that we did, uh, didn't have mummies in that exhibit. Um, so this is a, one of the, significant changes, I think, going forward. Next slide, please. So in 1913, the Provincial Museum of Natural History and Anthropology Act comes into place. And this was the act that really gave the museum a mandate to collect quote unquote specimens. Um, so now the province is sort of getting involved in this, uh, in, in the management, the display, the uh, there's so many words, not all of them good to describe what was happening in these early days. Um, all, the, all to say that this, uh, the heritage, uh, what we come to call cultural resource management was not systematic at this time and it certainly didn't involve indigenous community members themselves. Flashing forward to 1925, we have the Historic Objects Preservation Act. And although this is focused largely on the preservation of rock art sites, uh, it also started to expand protections out um, to the sites themselves and not just the uh, movable objects that come from them. 
Then in the 1930s, you have people like Frederica de Laguna and Philip Drucker who are starting to work on the coast and they're doing archeology, span but they're starting to include indigenous community members in that. Next slide, please. Then we have uh, the 50s, which is a big, a big period of time for archeology. span So this is when large scale excavations begin to take place and more and more development is happening, like uh, you know, businesses and homes and industry. And uh, salvage archaeology is first taking place alongside this develop, uh, development. We also have um, radiocarbon dating, which is developed during this period and is sort of changing the face of archaeology. Archaeology in this time is moving away from the descriptive, and it's starting to take on more of a scientific bent. And artifacts are collected as a record. They're collected for further study. They're collected in a systematic way for the first time. Uh, it's not just keeping the pretty things. It's not just keeping things that people are interested in. It's keeping all sorts of things. We're keeping a broad record and all of the data as well that goes with it um, so that they can be studied further down the road. Um, recovery of archaeological material is the major focus of this field work. So we have people like Wilson Duff, who was hired as the assistant in anthropology at the RBCM or the Provincial Museum then. And he's the first professionally trained anthropologist to hold that position. Uh, Duff worked closely with indigenous communities and called attention to a loss of archeological sites threatened by things like uh, hydroelectric projects. In 1951, Duff and Borden lobby, oh, Charles Borden is the fellow pictured here who created the Borden grid, which we in archeology span all use to identify the location of sites. So this is another systematic piece to our uh, recovery puzzle. Um, so Duff and Borden then lobbied the provincial and federal governments to write legislation to protect archaeological sites. In 1952, this uh, Borden system is developed. And in, around that time, the first archaeological impact assessment in British Columbia and possibly in Canada the Nechaco Reservoir study in Tweedsmere Park happens um, under Borden's directions. Now in the 60s, new archaeology is in full swing. The Archaeological and Historical Sites Protection Act for the first time now permits, uh, permits are required for archaeological fieldwork. So fieldwork is being systematically tracked and controlled by the province. Before you know, archaeological research projects happened, but there was no provincial oversight. And now things were being monitored, things were being uh, reported back on. So there was an accountability to a larger body. This is also when the Archaeological Sites Advisory Board uh, came to be. And this was a group of some professional archaeologists and some avocational archaeologists who advised the government about archaeological matters. Then in 1967, we have the Museums Act, which mandated anthropological research. The museums become more active in research and uh, you know this is where archaeologists are working in the museum and starting to do things like systematic surveys or coastal surveys. Um, anybody who's worked in archaeology might be familiar with um, some of the early uh, coastal surveys that were happening on a larger scale than they do now. This is also the decade in which the Office of the Provincial Archaeologist begins its centralized provincial site inventory. Next slide, please. 
oh, sorry, this was the one for the 60s. If you could tell by the outfits. <laughs> Next, yeah, thanks. So in the 70s, we start getting Indigenous people involved in archaeological projects again and starting to establish their own cultural centers and museums. So we have San Historical Village and Museum in 1970, Haida Gwaii Museum in 1976, Thurumbalese Cultural Center in 79, and then Umisa in 1980. This is a period in which the development of cultural resource management as a sector is tied heavily to the development of resource extraction and commercial development. So due to, uh, due to all of this development and resource extraction, the provincial museum then acquires a, a vast amount of new material. And we're, we're now talking not just pretty, pretty artifacts, but we are talking the soil samples and the reports and the, you know, uh, all, all of those things together, all the maps and all the photos. Um, in an article by Brian Applin, he says that a lot of activity was happening, but that still no central focus or planning strategy was, uh, was emerging. This is also uh, the period in which um, the Archaeological and Historic Sites Protection Act version two comes into play and this in this version it introduces the idea of compensation so compensation for landowners this really sort of makes archaeology take a bit of a turn and is is tying it less to less to um, sorry about that less to uh, scientific research for the for its own sake and more to the idea of um, resource extraction and the value placed on land, like a monetary value placed on land. Um, this is also the period in which the Office of the Provincial Archaeologist was created. And in 1977, then we get the Heritage Conservation Act. The Archaeological Sites Advisory Board, which had been advising the province, becomes part of the Provincial Heritage Advisory Board. And then next slide, please. In the 80s, we have uh, a real focus on CRM. First Nations call for repatriation of collections and control of their own heritage. There's a now a larger consideration of morals and ethics of museum collections. And in 1981, the provincial site inventory was transferred from the RBCM to the archaeology branch, but the catalog remained. Um, the provincial catalog remained here. 1985, the Provincial Museum becomes the responsibility of the Ministry of Tourism, while the archaeology branch moved to the Resource Ministries, now Glenro or something maybe even newer as of last week. So here we are in the 90s. Um, this, I chose this photo because it's two, two individuals or two streams of thought that had previously been besties and now they're just consumed in their own worlds. Uh, cultural resource management is taking off in its own way and archeological repositories and museums in a totally different ministry are doing their own thing. And this is where we see the divide. So um, we see, we are still seeing some interesting developments like in 98, we get the CMT handbook. So new types of cultural material are starting to be identified but there's no plan for storage for that type um, and that becomes a problem because this CMT is impacting, CMT identification is impacting the CRM world, but it's not really reaching over to repositories. So yeah, two, 
two fields, they're best friends, living their own separate lives, but together, it's kind of weird. And then give it another 15 and 20 years to run their separate courses. And that leads us to today. So next slide, please. This is our current situation. So I go through all those details because um, understanding that the two sectors used to be one sector and they split off for whatever reason really helps us to understand uh, the lingering ties that need to be there for the sake of understanding our cultural past. Um, and it allows us to understand you know, what, why things ended up the way that they did. So where we're at now is that there's quite a disconnect. Repositories uh, are sort of regarded in practice as being an afterthought for commercial archeologists. And I say this because, you know, after a few years of working here as a collection manager, um, we get a lot of closed permits that are turning things in way after their permit is shut or uh, people budgeting a certain way to get a job, but not budgeting enough for the post-excavation analysis, documentation and packaging. Uh, you know, we've seen people hold on to stuff for decades and decades and turn it all in at once. Um, so there is a real problem that's impacting repositories and it also therefore impacts people's ability to access that material. But, you know, there's some material out there still in, in sort of being held hostage because nobody knows where it is and no one can access it. So it's really important. The function and role of repositories is really important in being accountable uh, both to the province for the work that was done, but more more importantly to the indigenous communities whose cultural past this is. Um, so where we're at now is that there are 50 plus uh, rep archeological repositories on a, on a list that the archeology span branch keeps. This includes community museums, indigenous cultural centers and museums. Um, and it's a quite a broad spectrum. Some of them are big, like the RBCM. Some of them are really, really small uh, and have like one or two staff. And there's obviously a very big problem because uh, for quite some time, consultants didn't realize the relationship with repositories and would, you know, sometimes just drop off a couple of boxes on the doorstep of their local museum and the museum goes, what? What is this? What am I, what am I receiving? And, and there's just like that lack of um, understanding and tying into a big picture. So uh, the minimum requirements for who can and can't be a repository are pretty vague right now, but we're, we're all working you know, with our branch to um, improve those and provide some more support. And it's important to know that formerly, uh, a lot of these museums and, and cultural centers used to be part of the BC Museums Association. And so um, the BC Museums Association minimum standards were used to, um, to make people a, a suitable repository. I think gone are the days where um, white Westerners are telling repositories, you must do X, Y, and Z, otherwise you can't have your stuff. Uh, but now trying to go towards a more supportive, uh, a more supportive set of guidelines that help people uh, and help people keep material close to home. Um, so now uh, it's important to know that HCA requires cultural material to go 
to an approved repository, but but there's still no official provincial support for this. Like you get on the list as a repository, but there's no money that comes with this. And that is a huge impediment to how repositories function or, or have trouble functioning. Next slide, please. So I wanna just take a second to uh, give you guys an example of how repositories and how Western science which has claimed for so long this objectivity, how we've really missed the mark. And this is totally self-indulgent because I get to talk about the thing that I love. So bear with me for a quick minute. So um, some of you will be familiar with wet sites and waterlogged perishable materials. Um, these are organic materials like plant material and wood and things like that, textiles that are trapped in an anoxic environment. Uh, the water, the presence of the water pushes out the oxygen and it decreases the rate of decomposition. So in some sites you find uh, perishable materials that have survived. Uh, you might be familiar with this in Europe with like Viking longships or things of that nature, bog bodies. Um, those uh, conditions exist all over the world. And the reason that we haven't had that many sites identified on the on this coast uh, is more to do with who was training the early archaeologists working in this province. So uh, the people who were training the early archaeologists working here were people who were working largely in the American Southwest. Uh, the other thing is um, uh, there were, you know, archaeologists, archaeology instructors were primarily men for quite a long time. And even before that, archaeologists were relying on the direct historical approach where they were using ethnographic accounts and early settler accounts of what Indigenous life was like and then they project that back onto what they're seeing. And part of the problem with those records themselves is that they were collected, not objectively, they were collected uh, by people who had their own uh, Western worldview. And in the case of wetlands and wet sites, um, you know, if you're coming from Western Europe, wetlands are seen as a ripe source of agricultural land. And what you need to do is you need to dike them, you need to drain them, and then you need to farm them. So this is a picture for you of a cow today, and that's exactly what has happened there. Um, a lot of land reclamation took place. Uh, but what you're also seeing with that Western perspective is you're seeing, uh, a focus on resource extraction of things like fish and timber and things like that, but not, you know, Western uh, Western folk, folks from Western Europe are not focusing on the productive uh, biodiversity of wetlands. They're not focusing on any of the plant material there. And so in accordance with that, they're also not focusing on the work of indigenous women uh, who would be doing lots of plant gathering and cattail mat making and things like that. Furthermore, if you were uh, an early settler here, uh, you know, likely Christian and likely, uh, you know, restricted by a uh, sense of morals, and you're not going to just wander off into the wetland following a bunch of women to document what they're doing. So the, the ethnographic record is actually pretty biased towards men and men's things. Add on top of that the archaeological uh, predilection and ease of recovering things that are made of stone and bone. 
and you come up to uh, just sort of like an overall predisposition for archaeologists being trained not to be paying attention to websites. Furthermore, conservation of waterlogged material is complicated. The skill set required to do that is very um, limited. There are people who do it, but um, there's not a lot of them. And so repositories often have a problem with storing waterlogged material. We store it when it's been treated, but there's only currently one active lab that treats that in this country. And so, um, so all that to say that you're not going to be able to teach anybody, you're not going to be able to, you know, teach anybody about any of that aspect of, uh, of cultural history if you don't have that material. Anybody who's heard of the site of Ozette in Washington State will know that it was a, a village that was sadly covered by a mudslide and that preserved all of the perishable material. When they excavated it, they found that 90 to 95% of that site was perishable material. Only 5% was stone and bone. And that's quite significant because if you think of this collection of 250,000 objects that are uh, stone and bone primarily, it's only a tiny fraction. So um, it just goes to show that like the conclusions that archeologists have been making about the past were just made on the tiniest fraction. And, and even though we did it in a scientific manner, the cultural influences have permeated science and the way that we do archeology span now. And so permeated the way that we recover archeological material and the way that we store it in these repositories and therefore the level of accessibility or inaccessibility to community members. Next slide, please. So that brings me to uh, Andrea Kripa and the TRC call to action. Hey, Jen. Is, yeah. Um, I think I'm gonna guess based off of what I'm hearing, um, I think you're moving away from your microphone at some points in time, and then it sounds like you're kind of talking from a hallway. Oh, sure, sure. I'll stay close. Thank you. Um, so we've got Andrik Dripa and the TRC calls to action. And this is like its own subject, definitely. Uh, there could be multiple, multiple talks about this. So I won't go into it in detail, but just to say that um, at, as a repository, archeology span repositories really have a duty to uh, make sure that all of the material is um, documented accurately and that it's made accessible to community members. We're moving away from a time when archaeologists were experts and moving towards a time when, you know, someone in my position is helping people access their material and, and have them tell their own stories and not me tell a story for them. Uh, implementation is obviously challenging for a lot of sectors, but it seems pretty clear in the heritage sector and it starts with repatriation and, and, and support for Indigenous-led curation. So um, we definitely need to improve these practices um, and we need to support Indigenous communities to tell their own stories. Part of that will eventually be them to have their own repositories where they can keep this material close to home, which does happen in some communities already. Next slide, please. So the end goal for us is to keep track and take care of archeological material and repatriate wherever possible. I'm just gonna breeze through the uh, main functions of the repositories now. So early on, we talked about what people think of a repository is, and now I'm bringing it back to what we actually do. 
So we actually store cultural material. That is, that's a very safe assumption. We do that. We've done it for a long time. Um, here we have on the left, we've got um, a whole collection of archaeological photos. So this is photos of items, but also people doing archaeology in field. Uh, we have, this is a piece of perishable material. So we have uh, belongings, both perishable and on the right, we have, have the classic stone belongings. Um, you'll notice that I've changed two belongings from artifacts. Um, and this I do at, at the request for my indigenous colleagues. Um, and uh, I think, you know, we've spent a lot of time calling them artifacts, which kind of divorces them. You know, yes, some of these things might have been dropped. Yes, some of these things might have been thrown away. But at one time, they were belongings and they were made by people. And so um, I choose to use that terminology as we go forward. So we've got uh, in this collection here, we have um, belongings, we have data, we have maps, we have notes, we have forms, we have samples, we have all sorts of things. Next slide. We have a lot of soil samples, a lot, a lot. Uh, this is just a tiny snapshot of the warehouse, and this is only a tiny fraction of what we have. Next slide. We also have tons and tons and tons of reports. So uh, gone are the days when you'd have these big fat volumes of uh, archaeological reports, and now we have a lot more um, short reports about uh, smaller projects. We also do have uh, old site forms that the archaeology branch doesn't have. Next slide, please. And then we have the provincial catalog. And this is something that is near and dear to my heart. Um, it used to be these old ledgers that had like uh, specific items uh, when they came to the museum and very, very minimal information. Now the provincial catalog functions not just as a key for finding stuff within a museum, but the provincial catalog numbers are assigned to all material that is recovered under archaeological permit in the province. And this has actually become a real chain of custody document. So in, in the efforts to repatriate things, communities need to know where their belongings are. You might go to the archaeology branch and the archaeology branch has site form records that may or may not be complete and may or may not tell you where these belongings are. But if people have requested provincial catalog numbers, from us, then we can say, yes, under permit X, Y, and Z, so-and-so recovered this many belongings and they're at that repository. So it's a very, very handy thing. And we're, we've been working with the archeology span branch for years to make these systems fit back together in an elegant way. So stay tuned there. And then another and dear uh, subject to my heart, next slide please, is repatriation. Um, I know for a lot of repositories, uh, this can sound really scary, like, are we going to end up with just empty cabinets? But I assure you um, that the meaningful relationships that are built, uh, the opportunities for collaboration on future exhibits and uh, recreation of things, all sorts, all sorts of opportunities abound. I think what's most important is uh, knowing whether or not there are ancestral remains in your care, and certainly there are in our care, and making it a priority to get those ancestors back home. This again is another massive, massive topic topic that could be an entire, you know, entire degrees worth of conversation. But just to say that um, 
my colleagues, uh, Lucy, Belle, uh, Luann, Neil, and Nika Collison had worked very hard on the repatriation handbook, which is a great place to start. You can download it from our website. Next slide, please. So now let's just talk a little bit about how to navigate if you are a repository. I guess the first thing is to find out if you're on the list. And in order to do so, you just need to contact the archaeology branch. Um, you should know that provincial catalog numbers are required for all archaeological belongings recovered under permit, regardless of their ultimate destination. Because as again, again, I say it's the chain of custody documents so is very important for repatriation and accountability. Um, understand that repositories are more than just a warehouse. Under conditions five and six of the current Heritage Conservation Act permit, consultants are required to turn archaeological material into a designated repository. And as a repository, you need to know what's coming down the pipe so you can avoid those nasty surprises of just like a bunch of boxes on your doorstep. Um, repository request forms are uh, important prior to permit issuance because that helps you anticipate what is coming down the pipe and it opens up a chain of um, uh, or it open it opens up a, a an avenue of dialogue with the consultant so that if they have unexpected things they can call you and also it helps you you know with your space needs or if you are maxed out on space it helps you to be able to say to them before their permit is happening whoa, we don't have any space, you gotta find someone else right now, sorry. Um, we have a repository request form, which we're happy to share with anybody if they're interested as a template, take it, use it, change it, whatever you like. Also the repository can stipulate the parameters of the deposit. So um, repository requirements document is super helpful that way you uh, have an agreement before the project starts that the archeologist knows what the expectations of your repository are. And that allows you uh, to work with them or it allows them to put that into the budget for their projects upfront. So it's not a surprise after the fact, it's about being clear upfront so that everybody knows how to plan for the future. And then lastly, that any changes in a repository will require a permit amendment for which you have to contact the archeology span branch. Um, oh, sorry. Lastly, repositories definitely need to have a contingency plan. So um, if you had to suddenly close, where does all that material go? Uh, it's a bigger conversation to have, and um, it's not something you should answer quickly or lightly. So it's just something to put on your uh, discussion list. And finally, uh, repatriation plan. Um, as I said, the handbook provides a really good and uh, comprehensive overview of steps that are involved for both, it's, it's tailored to the communities, but it's also very helpful for repositories in trying to uh, support communities doing repatriation. Next slide, please. So the last thing I will leave you with is the Heritage Repositories Association of BC, which is a group of repositories. Some of you may already be involved in that. Uh, in the absence of um, direct guidance from the province, uh, these repositories got together to discuss some of the issues that are facing um, us as a, as a group and to try to work towards some solutions. Of course, uh, the pandemic has, um, has put a hold on all of this, but I am keeping an email contact list. So if anybody is interested or has more questions about this or wants to get involved, please just send me an email and I will add you to the list so that when we revive this 
uh, group of helpful individuals, then we can um, add you and get you in there. So I just wanna leave you with some ideas to move forward in a good way, some questions to ask. Next slide, please. As, as I mentioned at the beginning, it is the tip of the iceberg. This is a huge, huge discussion. Uh, it's all moving parts and learning along the way. Um, but here's a couple of questions you can ask. How can affected First Nations archeologists and repositories work effectively together to achieve goals of heritage preservation? What are our obligations, both inward and outward? And I'm gonna open it up to everybody now to uh, ask more questions and suggest more ideas there. Uh, and also after this webinar is over, if you have questions or you have, you wanna chat, please feel free to send me an email and I will get back to you. So I definitely wanna take this time to thank specifically Lucy Bell, Louie Neal, Michelle Washington, Nick Collison, and my colleagues who spent the hunt, Katie Massaboy, Angie Tapp, and everybody else who's helped me learn along the way, and uh, BCMA for having me speak to you today. Thank you, everyone, and please let me know if you have any questions. Thank you. Let me just share my uh, slide again, which reminds folks where, um, there we go. Questions are, questions in Q&A, they're in your taskbar. Um, can't find the taskbar, might be hidden from you, so just hover your mouse at the top or the bottom of your screen, and then I can um, read them out for our, our presenter. Ooh, um, when sending out a repository request form to consultants, should there be a section for them to write down the provincial catalog number, or how is that information communicated to the repository? Yeah, so the provincial catalog number is something that people request directly from us. Um, and, and repositories don't necessarily have to be involved in that process. I know it's just an extra step, um, but what I would suggest is that in your repository requirements that you ask, um, you ask your consultants to have a cover letter document that has a list in this box or in this delivery, we have 10 boxes under permit X. The belonging numbers are, you know, one to a thousand and make it clear there uh, on the deposit slip, basically. Um, and that way you'll have an understanding of what, what is in your custody. Um, and then that way you don't have to worry about doing the extra step of communicating with us. I hope that helps. Thank you. Uh, you said one wet lab in the country. Where is it? So there have been a few that have come and gone. And it's my understanding right now that Canadian Conservation Institute is the only one that is active. But of course, now that everybody is finding wet sites and they're not scared of them anymore, <laughs> they are starting to recover a lot of perishable material, which is great. Um, but now CCI is swamped. Um, and that also, you know, they have had retirements too and the pandemic too. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why, um, why that is uh, a limited avenue. Um, there are some commercial archeologists who have trained in this and uh, like I think sources is, is one. I know Katesy uh, Development Corporation used to have a wet site lab, but I was under the impression that it was shut temporarily. Um, and I know that we at the RBCM are trying to have, trying to uh, make a lab in our new collections and research building, but that's still a ways away, so. Thank you. 
Um, a question for Rebecca. If we feel we don't have the capacity or resources to be a repository, is there a main repository we could transfer these items to? Yes. So the RBCM kind of between the Museums Act um, acts sort of like the provincial repository. So if things, if you can't keep things in your small repository, I think the first step is to discuss with people like the archaeology branch about repository status and whether or not there are supports or there will be supports. I think they need to hear from repositories that they need support because we talk about the lack of funding a lot, but there's, uh, I'm not sure how much direct contact they're getting about that. So I would suggest that as the first stop, but yes, as a second uh, and last place, the RBCM is, is the provincial repository. So we're supposed to take anything that isn't staying local. Thank you. Do museums that are repositories typically add repository objects to their collections database? Yes. Uh, and that's just so that you can manage them in-house. If people come to your repository, you need to access them. It's, you know, that's the best way of being able to find them and pull them up. Thank you. Uh, someone asked in the chat if um, they noticed that this webinar is being recorded and they'd like to be able to pass this information on to others. Yes, if you are attending the webinar, um, a link to the recording will be sent up to you hopefully this afternoon, if not this afternoon, then tomorrow. Um, it's a link to where we upload our uh, recordings on our Vimeo, and you are welcome to share it with your colleagues. Uh, if you are a member with the BCMA, a recording of this webinar will also be made available in our member video library. Um, Paul, a question for Paul. How much archaeo, I'm going to say, how much archaeology happens in BC? A lot, a lot. So, um, so uh, you'd have to contact uh, someone at the archaeology branch to figure out how many permits have happened this year. Um, but there's multiple kinds of permits. So some of them, the ones you might have seen around town, are things like you know someone on the beach is building a new house and they need an archaeologist to work on that site. Um, but then there's also things like blanket permits uh, that are for municipalities or for oil and gas projects. Um, and there's a lot of them. Those projects cover great swaths of land and they cover different investigations at different points along the road route or the pipeline route or the, you know, every time you put in a new telephone pole. So yeah, there's a lot, a lot of archaeology that goes on. Um, and I'm taught and for as a repository, as an individual repository, but the biggest one, uh, you know, there's well over 200 deposits that are happening a year for me, and that could be everything from like a small envelope with one or two belongings to like tens of boxes or, you know, or more. So it's a lot. There's a few academic projects, but I would say, I would say probably less than 10% comfortably, maybe even less than 5%, but again, the art branch has the stats on that. Thank you. Uh, can a museum transfer archaeological belongings to a First Nation that has its own repository without doing it as repatriation? Yeah, I think so. Uh, again, you probably have to talk to the ARC branch about this, but I think that transferring from one repository to another would just require a permit amendment. Um, there's a difference between, like, for example, when we repatriate ancestral remains, we're doing that outside of transfer of belongings because ancestral remains were never 
accessioned into this collection. They're never treated like objects here. They are um, outside of the collection. So that's something that we're doing sort of separately. Um, but if you're just transferring a collection or a permit, uh, a permit collection to a repository that's already on the list, I think it's just a permanent administrative process. Thank you. Um, oh, this one's a big one. Okay. Oh, Nathan, Nathan says yes, correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks. Okay, how should repositories deal with material that has very little associated information with it? Like objects that were submitted many years ago with no paperwork, reports, provenance info, even some items that seemingly had no board and numbers associated with it. Great question. Great question. Uh, so we have something at the RBCM that we call the Y collection, and this is material that was recovered uh, in the early part of the century where, you know, it's like, oh, my grandfather had a strawberry farm and he found this while he was plowing up and the farm was in the valley and you're like, okay, great, the valley, which valley? Um, so what we do here and what I've done uh, quite often is, um, uh, first of all, you can contact the archaeology branch. Uh, if it seems like it was after, let's say 1960, you can try seeing if there's any records there. Um, then you can contact folks like us um, to see if there's any other, uh, you know, if there's a donor name, that's often the key. Um, so you can try then to figure out who these people were, where they were. Um, you can contact your archives to see if there are any like uh, notes about where they lived or journals or photographs or things like that. You can also look in your own catalog to see if the person who brought in this archaeological belonging um, brought in anything else at the same time and that can often tell you, um, you know, where they might have been. For example, if someone brought something into this museum and they brought, you know, let's say in like 1900 and they brought in a specific kind of um, you know, bird shell that is it only a coastal bird and they only let, you know, there are just little clues along the way. It's certainly not straightforward. It's certainly not an easy, quick answer. It requires a lot of digging. Um, but there are little, little tiny bits of information that can often um, bring you closer to figuring out where things belong. And so for us um, at the Provincial Museum with this Y collection, a lot of what happened was these, uh, you know, they'll say, a specific beach in a, you know, they'll say Willow's Beach. Maybe it was the first belonging found at Willow's Beach, but it was before the archaeology branch existed. Uh, and, um, and so it hasn't been added into that. Uh, in other cases, there are single finds from sites where an archaeological site is not yet recorded, but there are multiple single finds. And for a while, the archaeology branch wasn't uh, giving a board number to a single find, but if you have three different people who have brought in belongings from the same place, then that becomes evidence of a site and therefore the archaeology branch gets looped in and you create a site form and therefore things get a board number. I hope that helps. It's Thank great for you. people who like to be detectives, for sure. When you said why in my head, I thought like, why did this happen? <laughs> We've definitely made that joke for sure. <laughs> um, okay, I'm just keeping an eye for anyone who's rapidly typing out their last question. Um, 
If not, they can always uh, contact you via email, correct? Correct. Wonderful. So I'll include your email address in the follow-up email um, that will also have a link. Oh, and it scrolled too far. What happens when I'm scrolling through the chat and also happen to scroll through my PowerPoint. Okay, well, given our time and the fact that I don't see any questions coming in, I'm just going to wrap us up, which you already saw a sneak peek of my slides. It's my thank you, Genevieve, so much for joining us. Um, wonderful slides. I love all the photos. Oh, here, is this the last question? Oh, it's a thank you. Aww. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it was absolutely wonderful, super interesting information for someone like myself who hasn't had a lot of experience with archaeological repositories. So I really appreciate you joining us today. Um, thank you so much for all of our participants for joining and, and learning and asking such wonderful questions as well. Um, if you are interested, we have another webinar this month, month at uh, March 30th. It's in your wheelhouse, asking the right questions. And you can register for that at museum.bc.ca. Uh, thanks again so much, Genevieve. I hope you have a wonderful sunny afternoon, and I hope everyone else enjoys their afternoon as well. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.